0: This is a Lip Media podcast. You're listening to all the shit I've learned abroad. I'm Andrea Gillis, and I'm Step Page. We're two Canadian expats now living in Australia and the UK. Between the two of us, we've been through the ringer in our travels, experiencing missed flights, volcanic eruptions, and even a terrorist attack. It's not all that extreme, though. We've also experienced
1: heartwarming, life changing moments and met amazing people along the way. So, kick back and listen to all the shit I've learned abroad.
0: Welcome to another episode of All the Shit I've Learned Abroad. I'm Andrea. And I'm Steph. Steph. This week's episode. This is an episode that we've wanted to do for a very, Mm -hmm. very long time. If anyone listened to an episode we put out how many weeks ago? I don't know. Four, oh God, it was quite some time five, ago. Yeah, so it was the uh, things we wish we knew before traveling episode, and one of the things I had said in that episode specifically was that I wish I knew not to ride the elephants in Thailand when I went to Thailand yeah. for the first time years ago. Um, and off the back of that, Steph and I wanted to do a deeper dive into talking about ethical animal encounters on our travels. Steph, this week you actually interviewed someone who's a bit of an expert on this topic. I
1: did. I interviewed Dr. Sally Sherwin, who is the Director of Wildlife Conservation and Science at the Zoos Victoria. Mm. Um, So basically, she manages a whole team, kind of about everything zoo conservation and education. Uh, She explains it a lot better than I just did. But basically, her background's in animal welfare science and human-animal relationships. So she was actually the perfect person to interview for
0: this. It was so great of her to take the time out. Uh, A very busy time for them right now with the bushfires happening over there. Well, that's
1: exactly right. So I'm sure a lot of people have seen with the bushfires that a significant amount of animals have either died or been injured Mm. and are suffering still. So Zoos Victoria is part of a huge network that are doing a lot of work um, with these animals um, as a result of the bushfires. Mm -hmm. So I just really appreciate her taking the time in the midst of all of that. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I'm quite excited to hear this interview because I haven't actually heard it yet. (laughs) So I'm listening for the first time along with all of our listeners.
1: I, I, and thank you for your trust in me. (laughs)
0: Always (laughs) stuff. Always. All right,
1: here we go. So I'm here with Dr. Sally Sherwin from Zoos Victoria. And first off, I wanted to thank you for taking the time to discuss this with us. I know everyone is working overtime right now with the bushfire relief efforts,
2: um, so, we just wanted to say thank you because we really appreciate your time here. Uh, no worries happy happy to chat about this topic. It's a really really important topic for us um, yet to talk more about in the community as you know as is bushfire response and relief but um, but yeah we're, we're working on a range of things at once and good at multitasking these days. so happy to be here. Awesome.
1: Um, well, to give you some context, we've actually been wanting to do this episode about ethical animal encounters for a while now. Um, and, on, 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 and on an episode we did called Things We Wish We Knew Before Traveling, one of my co-host items was riding elephants in Thailand because she went a number of years ago and just didn't know. And she really regrets that she did it. So um, that really wanted us to do an episode like this, because really, if people you don't know until you know. Um, And a lot of us, unfortunately, learn the hard way.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a it's a really common feeling because a lot of the time you engage in these animal experiences because you love animals and um, and you're not necessarily aware of some of the the background to it. So um, yeah, it's, it's a great topic to be discussing in, in trying to work out, you know, how, what is an ethical experience that you can engage in and and get up close with animals in a way that's good for them and good for us.
1: Yeah. Um, to get started. So I know many people think zoos are simply just that, but I know zoos Victoria is a lot more than that. Um, would you be able to give our audience an overview of zoos Victoria and the work that you all
2: do? Yeah sure. So we're a zoo-based conservation organization. So that means wildlife conservation is our mission and everything we do is to work towards that mission, which is biodiversity gain in the wild. And so that's that's our core focus for Various activities and and everything that we work through, and so to get there, we use um, our three zoos across Victoria. So that's Melbourne Zoo, Werribee, Open Range Zoo, and Hillsville Sanctuary, as um, as as tools to achieve wildlife conservation. And so that's through engaging in um, two main focus areas in conservation. So one is what tip typically people will think of when you talk about conservation and that's the threatened species biology part to it. And that's, you know, the um, habitat protection in the wild for key threatened species, even some some of them captive breeding in our zoo sites and released back to the wild. And that that real key focus on, on the biology of conservation. And we do a heap of work in that space and have an entire threatened species biology team that work on that Particularly focused on our local Victorian species, so critically endangered Victorian terrestrial vertebrate species that we focus on. Because you know we we keep thinking, what if we lived in a world where every zoo around the world focused on conservation in their own backyard? The you know the biodiversity across the globe would be um, in a much better place. So we like to really focus local and um, but also but also do a lot of global work as well. So that biology is one piece of our conservation strategy. And then we've got the other piece, which is where, you know, what most people in the community would see happen through our zoos. So that's the social science of conservation. So recognising that a lot of our threats to wildlife around the world are actually human driven threats. And mm. so, we thought, you know, what if we can use the science of behaviour change to try and um, educate, raise awareness and, um, and encourage people to change some behaviours that they might not be aware of that are actually contributing to threats to wildlife and, and engage the community to be much more wildlife and environmentally friendly in, in their day-to-day living. So that's a key focus for us. And, and a lot of that you can see as you come through the the zoos and learn more about some of the the campaigns and awareness raising work we do.
1: Awesome. That's amazing. And I guess this episode right now kind of falls into that category right there. Um, what just curious stemming off of that, what, who, what are some of the, um, endangered species that you're working with here in Victoria?
2: So, we have a list of what we call our fighting extinction species. So, these are 27 of Victoria's most critically endangered animals that live here in our own backyard. And, or actually, sorry, four of them are are actually not uh, also have ranges in in other states as well. And so, but the vast majority, so 23 of the 27 are only in Victoria. And that is. they're what we call a a conservation strategy focusing on it's it's a bit like the ICU animals that are at such you know a critical tipping Mm -hmm. point that really need intervention and help and they're the ones that we're we're targeting in this fighting extinction group and so they're animals like spotted tree frogs, the bauble bau frog, um, orange-bellied parrot, the eastern barred bandicoot, lead-beater's possum. So we've got a whole range of incredible animals that, you know, li- live in our own backyards that need need a lot of help. And particularly with the bushfires we've seen sweep through the east coast of Australia, that actually has put an, a whole other level of threat on and um, and challenges for a lot of the species here in Victoria that we're rapidly trying to um, manage and, and work against to save these species.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine. And when I actually originally reached out to Zoos Victoria to do this episode, it was a number of months ago before the bushfires really kicked up. So it wasn't even on my radar for this interview originally. Um, mm. But I can only imagine the world right now has seen, you know, the estimated figures of how many animals have been affected or died from these fires how do you even, I, I know everyone's really busy doing a lot of work, but what even, I guess what's being done? We know everyone's helping yeah. um, and we see, you know, we see the videos online of people, you know, saving yeah. and helping the koalas. But what else is, um, what else is being done?
2: Yeah, so the um, the koalas have been a poster child of, of these current bushfires um and rightly so because they you know their range is down the east coast of australia and that's almost a direct overlap with where some of the you know the fires have burnt all the way down that east coast so they have had huge impacts on on their range but they're not going to go extinct as a result of of these fires. They're not threatened with extinction. Their populations and numbers have taken a huge hit. Mm-hmm. But what we're worried about with the koalas is is, is more an animal welfare issue because they are that there's a lot of animals out there suffering from. Mm-hmm. Um, from starvation, now we're looking at new threats associated with lack of habitat and forage for these animals. You know, with burns that can get infected and and an overpopulation of some areas. And so, what we're working on with our vets and in in collaboration with a whole range of partners and and the, the local government is um, how do we respond to that in an effective way and and help manage the welfare of these koalas that have been impacted. So that's going to be a long piece of work but the other piece to it is um, a lot of the animals that you know aren't aren't as well known as the koala that have been significantly impacted so we're looking at you know some animals that were already just had you know one or two strongholds of of the species in the population and those areas have been burnt through and so as the fire grounds become safe, our researchers are, are, are getting in there with with our partners to try and assess you know, the severity of, of the fire and what the level of survival is of certain species. And already we're looking at various different strategies of what we can do to try and help protect that species in the short term, but also in the long term, because with a lot of these things, the, the fire is just the start of an ongoing challenge for the animals. So, you know, if you survive the fire, which a lot of animals can survive fire, they've got, um, they can flee, they can um, burrow in and under, but what comes after the fire is lack of food availability, um, threats from predators, particularly introduced predators and um, dramatic habitat changes that can Um, have a significant impact on the animals and then also you know for some of the aquatic animals the real concern is waterway health and impacts from all of the um, the soot and the smoke and the debris from the fires washing into the streams and and having huge problems for waterway health as well so frogs and and fish and other semi-aquatic animals are particularly Susceptible to that, so there is a a really, really great community of conservation groups out there in Victoria at the moment, working so hard on this um, at at the moment, and it's it's been really, you know, it's what gives us hope. There's it's just such a strong cohort of of organisations and agencies working together with the government in responding to this this crisis and in in a really effective and rapid way. There's no shortage of work to be done, but everyone is, um, working really well together. So it's, it's good. You know, we've, we've got hope for the future of a lot of these species and we just need to give them a helping hand to get through this period and, and re- regenerate the environment. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah. Well, we're certainly glad that you and all your partners are doing this work. Um, cause if you just watch online, it almost feels a bit helpless. So I'm really glad, um, that you guys are all doing this work. Um, to be a bit more specific, can you tell us a bit about what you do and your role and your background?
2: Yeah, sure. So my role at Zoos Victoria is the director of the Wildlife Conservation and Science Department. So our team, we work across the, the three zoos as well as out in the field and um, out you know beyond the zoo's walls. So we're a team of... Um, like specialists and scientists with different areas of expertise so the four main areas of science we focus on um, in our team are environmental sustainability and um, that's where our carbon neutrality programs and um and sustainability work happens then we've got our animal welfare science team and uh, those guys focus mostly on welfare of animals living in the three zoos but also do a little bit of work in the wildlife welfare space. Um, Then we've got the threatened species biologists and and that's the group of researchers I spoke about earlier that are the you know the ecologists or species specialists who work on the biology side of the recovery of species. And then we've got the social scientists and educators and they're the team that work on um, the behavior change campaigns that that we run through our through our zoos and out in the community. so it's a really great team of of scientists of different backgrounds and expertise working together on some of these big, really challenging conservation programs. so it's um it's a pretty unique space where you know not many organizations have that level of multidisciplinary crossover across the scientists and it results in a lot of, innovation and effective use of of the research and the science to to make change for conservation and that's what we think is needed at, at you know this point in time where our planet is so heavily influenced by um, environmental change that we really need um, to think about the the blending and of sciences together and how they can be used for um, you know, in an innovative way, in, in a way that we haven't used them previously. So that's um, that's a summary of the team. So I get the great job of basically just um, you know working with them and supporting supporting them in in um, getting getting their work done. And and um, yeah, my my background originally before taking on the director role was in animal welfare science. So I. Um, yeah, have always been passionate about animal welfare and understanding, you know, what goes on, you know, behind what we can see visibly in animals and and what they're experiencing and using that science and knowledge to make changes for the better for animals that live around us.
1: Wow, that's awesome. Thank you. Um, Now, I know this is a really high level question, but for anyone who maybe doesn't know, can you explain to us what the difference is between a zoo a sanctuary a conservation um an aquarium and maybe even a circus right yeah like, but. <laughs> yeah
2: i guess the thing is all of those um those terms or those organizations that live by those terms are you know they have one thing in common and that is that um they they have animals in their care or um well, well not all circuses do thankfully mm-hmm. just um a few but Animals are involved in some way in, you know, a managed system with humans, and that's that's um, I think the the only common scenario across those different organisations. But it is quite difficult to differentiate. There are really blurred lines between a lot of them. I think the the most purest definition of, you know, a sanctuary, or um, a, for example, would be an a, a setting or an organisation where. Um, animals are it, either there because they're rescued or undergoing rehabilitation and therefore it's non, non-breeding animals a lot of the time. Having said that, some sanctuaries do breed animals, but um, often it's about um, yeah a, a rescue centre for animals who are in care, either ongoing, permanently or, or temporarily, before they get released back to the wild. Having said that, some zoos also so, um, like we do, we have a lot of rescued animals living across our zoos that you know either can't go back to the wild because they've got a permanent injury or um, have been rescued from other um, less ideal captive scenarios that um, therefore need to just be under care for the rest of their lives and so you know that's what I mean by blurred lines but typically zoos do have breeding programs for Um, various conservation programs whereas a sanctuary typically wouldn't but again having said that some do. Um, A conservation centre this is another one where it's blurred lines because um, good zoos should be um, act in a way that is both a sanctuary model and a conservation centre so doing Mm -hmm. um, good things for conservation and the natural environment but often the term conservation centre is used for the more of the Um, the ecotourism sites where they're semi-wild habitats and potentially um, wild animals that are are coming and going from that area. So they're not intensely managed by by people, but um, people can still visit and be confident they're going to see wildlife in that area. And, um, yeah, so an aquarium's basically um, a facility that houses aquatic Animals, so uh, heavy focus on on fish and um, and both marine and freshwater environments often. Um, and then a circus is, I would say the the um, the key definition for a circus is typically that they're that um, that their purpose is to entertain people. So mm. it's really about human entertainment. And thankfully, animals in circuses are. On the way out and not very common anymore because you know people just don't accept uh, a lot in the community these days that animals shouldn't be there for human entertainment in those settings so a lot of circuses these days will focus on non-animal related entertainment and still deliver an experience for people in that way so um, I'd say they're quite um quite different from the rest of the collective but as as you can see it's complicated and there's a lot of overlap across a range of those particularly um good zoos should should really play a sanctuary role and a conservation center role
1: got it yeah and yeah I didn't even I don't even want to touch on circuses too much because there has been a lot of activism around this and it does seem that they really are on their way out um, mm. there was recently a viral video about, uh, it was Circus Roncalli. They're using live projection animals now. So there's not, they're not real animals. It's projection. And it looked amazing. Do you think maybe yeah. that's the way of the future for circuses or?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it, it comes down to uh, any organization that holds animals in, in their care needs to be really clear about why, what, you know, what's the justification of those animals living with you. And, you know, it used to be historically um, acceptable in the general public that, um, that people were comfortable with people keeping animals for human entertainment. And that's what a lot of, um, historically, the zoos were based on. And that's where circuses, you know, have, have come from as well. But times have changed, community attitudes have changed, and it's no longer acceptable just to have animals under human care um, for the sole purpose of entertainment, and so this you know circuses would have fit in that category, and and so we're seeing that being phased out. So um, if their still primary goal is um, is entertainment for people, then they should be thinking of of other ways and how they can provide that entertainment and that um, that work with animals without having live animals under their care. If if they can't look after them, you know, to the right degree, which often um, circuses being mobile would be would be challenged with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, so then my next question here is about, so petting zoos. So every time I go on a road trip here in Australia, you know, I see a number of petting zoos along the way and they're typically, you know, kangaroos, goats, alpacas. Um, and I've always thought of these petting zoos as a place for children more to teach them like love and empathy for animals. But I don't know if that's actually real or if that's the story I've told myself. Um, what are your thoughts around these kind of roadside petting zoos?
2: Yeah, so this this is a bit of a tricky one. It, um, I'm not familiar with, you know, this as an industry as, as much as some of the other areas. But I'd say the first thing that differentiates, a, you know, a petting zoo as I would think of it compared to a lot of other um, zoos or sanctuaries and conservation centres would be. Um, it's very much focused on domestic animals compared to wild animals. If you see a petting zoo with wild animals in it, I would say that's a an immediate red flag in that situation. But it is really important for us to um, to start these conversation, recognizing that domestic animals are um, very different to what we consider wild animals. Even wild animals in captive settings, so zoo animals, we. We um, consider them as wild animals effectively um, very different to domestic animals because that's that's the thousands of years of of breeding for certain traits um, that brings that that creates a, d- a domestic animal as opposed to a wild animal and so they have certain traits within them that make them quite comfortable under human contact a lot of the time if given the right conditions. Um, whereas wild animals haven't been bred for that purpose to be particularly comfortable around human interaction and so that's really key to differentiate between the different types of animals and then of course once you start looking at Wild animals, there's a spectrum there of how comfortable wild animals are in, in, in engaging with humans as well. So some are particularly confident and comfortable, and others are at the other end of the spectrum, completely reclusive and shy, and don't want anything to do with humans. And mm-hmm. so it is a it is a really interesting topic to try and understand. But domestic animals have been, you know, bred for that trait of um, being, you know, comfortable and, and around humans and but it, it is key to then look at the environment that they're provided in, and how does that environment allow for those animals to to be able to express the behaviours that can make them comfortable in that situation. So, in a petting zoo, if they're all domestic animals in there, like farm animals and um, and some you know companion animals like dogs or cats as well, um, the other thing we should be looking for is the yeah the conditions that they're housed in. What you know what what level how long has the transport been for those animals because transport of animals can be quite stressful in certain circumstances what is um uh, you know have they got access to what's called refuge areas um where they can actually choose to get away from from people in that petting zoo at a time and have a bit of a, a break and control their own access to that so they're not you know being chased around if they don't want to be um and so there's yeah there's complicated things in that space to consider as well to do with how good or bad a a particular petting zoo might be. And um, yeah, so, so it's, it's quite a complicated discussion, but I think it should also come back to um, what, why, why do petting zoos exist? What role are they playing? And you touched on it before. Maybe it is a way of, of getting, um, children connected with animals from a young age and so if that's the mission then it should just be done in a way that's good for the animals and good for the the kids and they learn that connection and that experience with those animals.
1: No, okay, thank you. No, I love that answer, actually. That was really helpful. Um, so basically, for our listeners, for anyone who's looking at a pending due, we could look at, you know, the space they're kept in, the care, how well kept the spaces and the refuge areas. That was, I mean, it yeah. makes perfect sense when you say it, but it wasn't something i thought to look for before. So that's really
2: helpful. Yeah. So just, and even ask the attendant, you just say, you know, what if this animal wants to get away from, have a breather from people, you know, patting it or, or, or kids holding it, what, what choice does it have to move away? And you should be able to see little areas where it's fenced off from people, but the animals can access. And if you see a petting zoo and all the animals are in that area, away from the people then that's telling you that you know those animals probably need a break from from that whereas if the animals are choosing to um be up and around and getting scratches and and some kind of positive experience out of the animals then um that's that's probably a great thing for the animals and the kids but there's yeah certain certain things in how the environment's set up that should be um built in to make sure that it's designed for um the animal's comfort first and foremost
1: got it Um, so now talking about animal encounters, um, I guess first I'm going to talk about the ones you can do in about an hour or two, there you go, it's a very set time. Um, and then we can take a look at more volunteerism experiences. Um, but when someone's looking to take part in an animal encounter somewhere, maybe they're not familiar with. Um, so for example, I'm Canadian. When I first came to Australia here, I wanted, you know, to do encounters with the Australian animals, what are good questions for people to ask beforehand to know or decide if it is an ethical encounter or if they are contributing to something that they don't want to?
2: Yeah. So this is a really, really good question. Really important, I think, for everyone to, to get their head around us as, you know, trying to be responsible tourists, but also uh, for industries in, in being able to demonstrate they are doing the right thing by the animals. And so we, we break it down into three three key questions or areas to look at. The first one is, is it justified? So justification is really about why, why are you doing this experience? And like we touched on earlier, um, it can't just be, you know, animals being used for human entertainment. It really should be justified for something that's um, delivering, you know, a, a strong conservation outcome. And that conservation outcome could be, um, you know, encouraging uh, connection through people it, with that animal, and therefore, you know, protecting um, or educating about threats in the wild, or it could be um, contributing to you know some some form of of biological conservation of that species. So, really important to try and understand um, when you're selecting a particular experience to take part in is you know what what does the organisation stand for? Are they a strong conservation voice and, you know, is this part of their mission to um, focus on conservation? So that's justified. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, and and asking questions in that space is, is really important. Then you move on to, is it humane? So humaneness is about animal welfare. But what's really important in this space is, it's not just about neutral animal welfare or, or anti-cruelty. That's obviously needs to be a given, but it shouldn't just get to anti-cruelty. It needs to move to the positive welfare space for animals. So we should really only interact with animals um, in a way that we're getting a benefit out of if it's positive for the animal as, as well as it is for us. Otherwise, you know, if we're putting animals through situations where they're not comfortable in for our own benefit, that just doesn't seem right. So focusing on humaneness in terms of what what benefit does the animal get out of that experience? And a really good way to evaluate whether that is um, a good positive experience for the animal or not is do they have choice to participate? And so we'll talk about choice a lot in this session because it is a really key indicator. You know, if we're given a choice, we choose things that we want to engage in or, or, or are motivated to engage in animals. So non-human animals are the same. If they're choosing to engage in an experience, then that tells you that they're getting something positive out of it. So, um, so choice is such a key contributor to um, being able to tell us if we think it's good for the animals. And so making sure that, um, yeah, they've got choice to participate but then also choice to opt out if they want to at any time of the experience. And so um, any experience that you see where it looks like the animal is physically restrained for that experience, that should be a red flag that... Um, the animal doesn't have choice in that situation and therefore, you know, it's being forced, potentially forced into a situation it doesn't want to be in. So um, that should be a red flag, whereas free choice for the animal to engage with the people, um, you know, start the engagement with people and then leave whenever they want, that is telling you that if the animals are choosing that, um, there's something good about it for the animal as well as the person. And you know you can look. I know that's easy to do once you're in the setting, but you can also look on websites of organisations offering them and see. You know, do they have a little um, disclosure statement that says, um, you know, this experience is is dependent on um, animal animal choice. If the you know, and and certain standards around um, heat and extreme weather condition, that tells you that, you know, the animal's not going to be forced into a situation it doesn't want to be in. So you could even call them up and say, um, you know, what's what's your heat policy? And uh, you would want to hear them say if it's, you know, above a certain temperature or below a certain temperature or, or various other um, conditions that us as humans wouldn't want to be exposed to, that they will cancel the event, you know, in interest of the animal and that the event might be cancelled if the animal's unwell or chooses not to participate. So, you know, good ethical experiences should have that upfront on their website that, you know, this, you you purchasing this experience is um, dependent on the animal uh, choosing to, to participate. Yeah. Um, and then the, um, yeah, I, I think the other thing to look for is what setting are they offered in as well? You know, is it, um, does it involve a lot of transport for the animals, knowing that transport's often not um, a positive experience for um, many people and animals as well. Um, and so, you know, making sure that the setting is really designed for comfort for the animal and, and the person as well. And and it should be quite naturalistic and sending a really um, positive message about nature and the environment as well as just about the animal. So um, yeah, some of the key things to look at so justified why they're doing it mm. humaneness it does the animal you know want to you know getting something positive out of it by engaging in you know choice to to participate and then the last one is effective, and that's um making sure that there's good monitoring um programs in place that are evaluating that the animals are um doing well and and are well looked after in those settings as well that's harder to get a a sense of um off a website or just uh, general ads but you can pick up the phone and ask those kind of questions you know how how the animals monitor how do you make sure that their um their welfare is safeguarded
1: nice that's really helpful thank you and you just actually reminded me um when i first came to zoos victoria to do the lemur encounter Um, it was a bit drizzly and yeah, they canceled it. Um, and they said the lemurs don't come out in the rain. We don't make them come out. Um, so we just can't do it today. And thankfully everyone who'd signed up was really understanding and, um, everyone rescheduled. But, um,
2: and so I guess, yeah, that's a key thing for us as tourists to be aware of that. Um, you know, we we've got to manage our expectations when wanting to engage in these kind mm -hmm. of experiences that, you know, it's it shouldn't be guaranteed because if something's guaranteed, it's it's potentially gonna come at, you know, the the cost of being able to give free free choice and free will to the animals involved. And so um, good zoos will do whatever they can to try and make it really positive so the animals want to be involved in it and that's entirely possible and up to up to zoos to you know to work to work hard to to make a positive for the animals and then um and then if visitors have that expectation going into it then they should feel good about being able to engage and ultimately it's a nice feeling if you book an animal experience and the animals have actively chosen to interact with you as well because i i think that makes you that should make you feel better then you know, an an animal being forced to engage with you. So I think it works both ways.
1: Mm -hmm. Now you did mention one um, red flag in there. You mentioned about if the animal is, you know, tied up or constrained in any way. Are there any other, I feel like a lot of times you worry, or I at least worry that maybe I'm being told what I want to hear, but it might not necessarily reflect what's happening behind the scenes. Are there any Mm. other kind of red flags we can listen to and answers or look for, um, to see if maybe we're being misled
2: yeah it it can it can be a challenge um Mm -hmm. because a lot of you know conditioning of animals can happen behind the scenes and there's there's a difference between positive reinforcement training and and making sure animals are rewarded um and and reinforced for. um in a positive way, that's good for them, and that they get a lot of good welfare benefits out of. Versus, you know, they've been taught through um, punishment or some other um, some other what bad way of of animal training to participate. But in general, um, yeah, if if again you you look for um, free choice for the animal to participate, but then also other clues can be things like. Um, if they have available available food elsewhere, so it's not you know what we call a dilemma for the animals. So oh. if they don't engage in that um, for that you know piece of food at that time, they can also then actually choose to just go over there and eat the same food. Or you know you can check with the person running it uh, when you know are they going to get fed in addition to this. So you know there's little clues like that that you can tap into so for example um our kangaroos the the visitors can feed them um stand there and feed them browse and and hold out a stick of browse that they love but there's also browse available for them um, in a in another area that they can choose equally as easy to go over and get that browse and so you know they've got access to engage in in the behaviours that they find rewarding in that experience, but also outside of that experience as well. And so, really understanding how the animals are being cared for and set up for these kind of experiences. But it is it is quite difficult to um, yeah to to differentiate what can happen a bit behind the scenes. But if you go back to the you know those three questions that we, we talked about earlier. Why is the organization doing it? And be really really thorough on your investigation into you know what's what's potentially the funds or um, or the role of that particular experience and what's it contributing to and um, be sure that it, it looks like a genuine conservation um, outreach activity and then choice for the animals so are the animals um, do they appear? you know, happy and and um, choosing to be involved in good body condition, um, not, you know, uh, uh, signs of an animal being in a situation where it doesn't want to be in is they look withdrawn or scared or quite timid and they, um, you know, quite passive and they're, um, they're signs that the animal might have been forced to be there and isn't particularly comfortable.
1: Yeah.
2: And, um, yeah, and I'd say being able to just... It, it, ask ask the right questions of the organization but then also look for some some key animal behaviors that might be telling that they um they're comfortable or, or uncomfortable in that situation
1: got it um well with the experiences i've taken part in with zoos victoria i've done quite a few i mentioned the meerkat lemurs koalas wombats gorillas um and they were all amazing and every time i did them we were given a strict set of rules to follow um absolutely no touching the animals Um, and especially even with ones and it's hard when they're crawling right on you and you want to pet them. Um, Mm. But I live in this bubble of people who do love animals and do want to respect them. Um, So I would never imagine just petting them anyways, like ignoring the rules. Do you guys ever have issues with people who just do what they want during an animal encounter, even though they've been told not to?
2: Yeah. Yes, we do. As, as you said, it can be really tempting um, but the staff are very well trained here mm-hmm. to respond to that, and we start with that briefing and often describe why it's important and that it's not, you know, just a rule for the sake of a rule, but it's it's something in place to safeguard the welfare of the animals and and the animals um, the animals' welfare in those experiences is is the focus of the staff involved, and so um, we just make sure they're adequately staffed and managed in yeah. those situations and that um if we see you know that visitors you know potentially breaching those rules or guidelines then the staff will just stop the experience and and end it there and and just say yeah that's um not something we stand for and and move away from it because they will focus on the animals in that experience and so um yeah there's they're very well trained in what to look for in both human behavior and animal behavior and are completely comfortable if um, visitors are pushing the boundaries repeatedly um, as a result of just not listening or following guidelines, then they will just um, stop the experience. Awesome. That's good to know.
1: Um, you actually touched on something earlier that I was going to ask you about was, um, so recently I did a, um, a polar bear. I went to a polar bear sanctuary. It's called the Canadian polar bear habitat. And mm. I was having all these same questions. I did a bit of research and it all sounded great, but I was having these same questions. It's a 10 hour drive. It's in the subarctic in Canada. Um, so I was a bit worried because anyone going there is taking a big long drive uh, to get there about if the, you know, if you are forced to see these animals or if they're forced to be there since everyone's coming from such a long way. But when I got there, there was a lot of signage that said we do not guarantee you'll even see a polar bear today. They do Mm -hmm. like they roam. It was 26 hectares of land and they go where they want. If you see one, if you don't, you don't. And I felt a lot better about it. Once I saw that, um, are there other things that you think zoos can do maybe to set expectations for when people are visiting? So we're not, you know, everyone always wants that up close, encounter even if it's not an animal encounter it's just an animal in its own area you know they want it close up to them to get photos what can other zoos do maybe to help set expectations of visitors
2: yeah that's such a that's such a good question and a really um a really hotly debated topic at the moment in in the zoo industry in particular but ultimately you know, we do, we want people to have connection with wildlife and we want, we want people to feel immersed in, in nature. It's just, it's so important for a variety of, of reasons, but mostly research shows that humans, particularly in, in cities and urban environments can be really disconnected to nature. And this can lead to mental health challenges for people, but also then a lack of care or or connection to the environment. And we need people to care about the environment. We need people to care about wildlife. And so, you know, good zoos and good um, sanctuaries and good conservation centres should be sending that message that humans are part of this bigger system and we should feel connected to the system and the environment. And zoos should be more than just the animal and coming to see, you know, an animal on display in a particular area. Mm -hmm. Zoos need to be focusing on come and experience nature and, and reconnect with nature and be immersed in the environment. And so shifting that expectation from, you know, the historical zoo model, which is where you come and you, you know, you have a checklist of animals. I want to see a tiger. I want to see an elephant. And you, you know, you just walk around and tick, tick, tick and see the animals. That's just part of the experience. What you should experience is, you know, all of the senses associated with nature and that animal and its habitat and how it lives. And so so reshifting visitors um, to have that, you know, more immersive experience in nature, recognising animals and, and the wildlife in zoos is just part of that. And so, um, you know, considering the senses, the, the sounds around us, the smells and um, often... You know to connect with wildlife and the environment you don't actually need to be physically touching it at all mm-hmm. you know my my favorite is when you you know you walk past the gorillas for example in their rainforest habitat you might not be able to see them particularly well you might see you know part of its animal a uh, part of its arm picking or face peeking out from behind a bush or it might be moving around or climbing a certain structure but you can actually, if, if you pay attention to it, you can smell them. And the smell, <laughs> once you're, you know, attuned to um, some of the animals and, and the smells and the senses associated with it, I find that incredibly powerful. But I think historically zoos have set people up to, you know, that's the experience you get. You come and, you you know, you have a checklist of animals that you see. And we need to start working really hard to to reset that expectation to focus on, zoos as part of nature and immerse yourself in, in nature with animals being just part of that.
1: Yeah. I love that. Um, now for those who listeners who are looking at maybe a bigger experience, whether it's volunteering for a week at an elephant sanctuary or with the big five in Africa, um, you know, a lot of people want to do this coming from a good place and they want to have a meaningful impact. Um, Are there international bodies that maybe recognize organizations? Like how do people tell one of the biggest questions I hear is how do you tell a sanctuary, a true sanctuary from, you know, a lot of these places are branding themselves now as sanctuaries to make you feel good about going there when in fact they're not. Yeah. How do people navigate choosing where to, you'll be doing something meaningful
2: yeah it's actually it's really it's really difficult to do currently there isn't really you know a a global accreditation system there's a lot of different um really reputable organizations that can um can either you know publicly support or um align themselves to what is you know an ethical uh system or, or scenario but um in the in the zoo world um The Australia and New Zealand, so the Zoo Zoo and Aquarium Association of Australia, and and that's in the region of Australia and and New Zealand and the Pacific Islands. Um, We have an accreditation system that's based on animal welfare, um, which is incredible. And so if if they're um, welfare accredited by this organisation, it means that they've got certain things in place that um, demonstrate good standards of welfare. That is um, unique to just the zoo world. There's obviously a, a lot of other um, venues and organisations that aren't operating as a zoo that um, people, you know, there might be more like a sanctuary that people would want to volunteer at. So I think um, there's a few things that, that people can do to look into and do some more research on and that's... Um, uh, asking questions where the animals have come from, you know what what their story is, and are they able to go back to the wild and If these animals are potentially you know just under care for you know a short period of time while they recover and now going back to the wild, they should be doing things to minimize human interaction with them and so you can you know it 's obvious if you're um, if you 're trying to release an animal back to the wild you don 't want it to be imprinted or um, attracted to humans, you want them to maintain those important wild behaviors, and so you can look for certain clues in that area. But also, um, some animals in a sanctuary might be rescued and and unable to go back to the wild because they wouldn't survive in the wild. And so, in that situation, it would be yeah, just looking at how they're how they're cared for and how they're managed in that situation. Do they have appropriate social groups and diets and, um, you know, and, and the jobs being done by the volunteers are, you know, essential healthcare or husbandry, um, jobs for the animals, rather than, you know, you, you just getting to sit down and and play with the animals. You know, you want to make sure that the role is about what you're doing to contribute to that animal's welfare. And, um, it can, it can be really tricky, but the other group that, um, do a lot of really positive work in this space of world animal protection. And so, um, they're a good one to, to look at their website and, and follow some of their guidelines around this as well. Perfect. Thanks.
1: One of, um, one of the things we thought maybe, cause we were kind of going off just, you know, our experiences, we thought, um, like if they let you ride the animal, probably not a true sanctuary. Mm. Um, yeah. And I feel like for things like that, maybe people, you know, if you look on Instagram and look at what they've been tagged in, if anyone's riding the animal, that should be a red flag right there. Would you say that's, is that right? Does that sound right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I would say, um, um yeah, it just, it comes down to, I mean, riding an animal's very specific mm-hmm. action. But um, at the end of the day, if you ask yourself, you know, what, why, why would you, why would you be riding yeah. and what does the animal get out of that? And the answer would be um, probably nothing if not, um, yeah, some, yeah, it, it just, I, I just can't see how riding an animal would benefit that animal. And so, you know, just coming back to that broader concept of, what are the human interactions with that animal and how are you um, how are you contributing to its welfare and, it. um, and, and look at the various behaviors on offer yeah, through photos or um, website reviews. And, and, you know, if, if you're, feeding the animal cleaning its its habitat or you know contributing somehow to helping that animal then that's a great start you want to dig a little bit deeper than that but that's in general a great start but um yeah I would say there's not a lot of situations I can think of where riding an animal a a wild animal would benefit that animal got it
1: Okay, so now I'm going to do a kind of quick fire round just about specific animal encounters we hear a lot about to kind of get your thoughts um, on each one. Um, Yep. The first one I have is dolphins, swimming with dolphins.
2: Yep. And swimming with dolphins in the wild is, um, yeah, it's it's a a common experience. So things you'd look for there is – to make sure that um, the you know the the boat's not harassing any dolphins and chasing them and various other things. But um, again, if you're just you know a, a nice bystander observer observer in their environment while in the water watching them, then that's great. But if you are in physical contact or yeah, riding riding any dolphins or anything like that in the water, then um, that's uh, that's very abnormal for a human. At wild animal mm-hmm. type of interaction so I'd um, be wary of that but if the experience with wild dolphins is just about you know uh, immersing yourself in their environment and enjoying them while they're going about their daily life then that's great. Got it.
1: Um, sloths in Costa Rica?
2: Sloths in Costa Rica that Costa Rica is really interesting they actually as a nation have just started a um, stop animal selfies campaign. In, oh. uh, across the whole the whole country. So there's a lot of um, ads and various things up, you know, saying, um, hit, you know, take photos with soft toy sloths, for example, rather than um, wild sloths. And so that's a really interesting campaign. I think they play some, you know, some short video clips explaining why for some of the flights, you know, inbound into Costa Rica to try and educate tourists going in there because the main challenge They've seen in that sloth encounter fo- photo um, experience that has been quite extensive in Costa Rica is um, because a lot of those animals um, they saw there was a tourist market for it, and so people were paying money for a sloth selfie because um, obviously a lot of people found that quite appealing and, and wouldn't have known what the animals gone through, but they worked out. A lot of those animals were actually taken from the wild, or you know, had had been taken as as young animals from their mothers in the wild, and then are used in that type of experience. So, as a way to try and um, counteract that, the the government introduced this new behavior campaign for people and tourists going to Costa Rica to stop it. So, um, again, that those ones would fit into the role of. If you're physically holding it and restraining an animal and it can't get away, then you know that's that's taking away its choice and so likely to not be in a good situation for that animal.
1: Got it. And what about quokkas in Western Australia?
2: Quokkas is a bit more complicated because it it really depends on how how the experience is set up, and so um, we discourage any feeding of wildlife because that can really mess with you know, nutritionally appropriate diets for animals, um, because humans can often not understand how complicated the, um, the gut flora and various other internal mechanisms are for wildlife. So we completely discourage any any feeding or any any uncontrolled feeding of wild animals, okay. and so um, we wouldn't want to see that happen um, for the quackers. But again. Um, if you can get near a quokka and 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 take a amazing photo of of the quokka and the quokka's got um, free choice to move away from you whenever it wants, um, then that that should be completely fine. But it, yeah, it comes down to don't feed them and don't interfere with their lives, just yeah. um, and don't force them into a close proximity with you or you know corner them in a certain situation. But if they're comfortable standing next to you and can move away at any time they want, then um, the quokka should be perfectly happy.
1: Got it. People will be happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. What about shark cage diving?
2: Shark cage diving is, um, a, again, another complicated one because if the people are in the cage and not interfering with, you know, the wild shark behaviour in those situations then um, and the sharks can come and go as they choose, then um, that's another example of a nice immersive experience where you can appreciate how incredible these animals are. But if the sharks have been baited or, um, you know, their, their daily routine's been um, manipulated by, you know, feeding or, or various other challenges, that can, that can impose a lot of... Um, uh, yeah, a lot of artificial requirements on, on the animals and lead to some challenges in wildlife biology. And so, you know, there's been a bit of research done recently on the impact of, you know, feeding of, of stingrays and things like that that have been involved in um, wild animal encounters. And it um, because of the availability of food was artificially um, controlled by that experience, they found... Um, very low dispersal rates of that um, that particular population of stingrays that we used, and therefore that resulted in inbreeding and other challenges um, to the survival of that population. And so, oh, wow. you know, any interference that we have with wildlife through yet yeah, through artificial feeding or other things can have the the potential to Um, really, really mess with the population dynamics in that wild system. So if we can do it in a way that um, people are in a cage immersed um, and in awe of the sharks without interfering with them, then that's that's a good way to do it. Wow.
1: Okay. That's great. And that gives people a lot of good questions to ask too. Thank you. Um, And then I've left this one to last because I'm a bit nervous about it because I've done some of these. Um, so dingoes here in Australia, this one can be confusing because different states seem to have very different views of dingoes. Um, but I've seen there's been some, um, breeding programs where they want to socialize the dingo pups. And then I've been to other ones where, um, they're adult dingoes and they, they do seem to have the choice. They can come near you or not. Um, but what about dingoes? Yeah, you're right.
2: Dingoes are a really complicated one and there's, there's a lot we still don't know necessarily about, um, you know, the genetics and the history of that species and, and what is good for their conservation. But um, I think the same general rules should apply. If the animals, um, if the message is about conservation and respect for this animal as a wild animal, and you're just given the opportunity to get up close to it and appreciate, you know, this as a wild animal without um, physically restraining it or putting it in a situation it doesn't want to be in, then um, and the and the message is is for conservation. Then that. That should be a great thing, but ideally, um, dingo pups, you know, you'd want to make sure that they've been—they're um, not, you know, pulled for for human hand rearing. That they're reared by their mothers as, as they should be up until a certain age, and you know, they they can be socialised positively with humans, but that doesn't require intensive hand rearing of them we want to you know we want to maintain those key wild behaviors and make sure that overriding message is for the conservation and um and connection with that species got it
1: all right so now one final question i know we've kind of gone over our time here um one thing we really try to make sure we do on our show is to not you know shame anyone if they've maybe done some things in the past they weren't aware of um And just for some context in that, I once took part, and I regret it wholeheartedly, in a tiger encounter in Canada a number of years back. Um, And when I was part of it, it it seemed very educational, um, you know, taking what you've said here into advice. I mean, obviously, it was restrained, so that should have been a red flag. But I think I had a false sense of security because it was in Canada. It wasn't in Mm -hmm. some, you know, foreign country that's known for their animal abuse. Mm -hmm. Um what can people do if they've realized they've taken part in something that they didn't realize at the time it was unethical? What is the best way for us to acknowledge, you know, our own part? um, Yeah. The best way to own our own mistakes and to speak. Yeah.
2: I'm, I'm exactly the same. I, you know, as a kid have done a, a heap of those kind of experiences from around the world. And I did them because I loved animals and I wanted to, you know, learn more about and be close to those animals. And that is, you know, uh, overriding, you know, the intention of a lot of people is they, they engage in these experiences because they love animals. Very few people set out, you know, to harm animals or, if you know, for any other motive. But what's important for us to recognise is this is just about new knowledge and, you know, the field of animal welfare science and what we know now about animals and what they experience and, you know, their, their minds and their and their welfare states overall and what's good for them and not good for them. We know a hell of a lot now that we didn't know even five years ago or even mm. 10 years ago. And so, you know, we're in a position now where this new knowledge should result in us now using this new knowledge to, to be better informed about what we do. And so I don't think we should be you know, harsh on ourselves for, for judging things that we did at another time when we didn't have the knowledge that we do now. So the important thing for us to, to think about is we know how incredible these animals are. We know what it takes to, to give them a good life and make sure they're living a good life and how humans can contribute to that. And so we need to act based on the knowledge that we have now and, and focus on what's good for the animals and therefore what's, what's good for people as well. And, and focus on it more as a, I like to use the term ecocentric experience. So make sure the experience as opposed to an, a human centric experience. So focus the experience on, you know, the, the connection with nature, the animal and what the animal is getting out of it as well as us as humans. And so, um, yeah, no. Just focusing on what we know now, forgiving ourselves for um, things that we've done historically when we didn't know better, but now focusing on on being more informed and and educated as a result of the science and the information we have access to now.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much for that. I love that. Yeah, and I guess so. That's everything today. Thank you so much for the time. I know that went a bit longer than we originally planned on, so I really appreciate that. No, that's
2: probably my fault. Once you start me talking on this topic, it's such an interesting and complicated at the same time Mm -hmm. topic to talk about. So I've probably waffled on a bit. I'm sorry.
1: No, not at all. That was great. And there's so much useful information. So I'm really looking forward to getting this out to everyone. And yeah, so thank you so much. Thank you
0: for having me, Steph.
1: And there you have it. That was, I really enjoyed that interview.
0: I'm so happy that we were able to get get her on, especially as we mentioned before, such a busy period for them. So a huge thank mm-hmm. you to Dr. Sally Sherwin.
1: And for anyone interested, she mentioned a lot of other organizations. So I'm going to link those up in our show notes as well. And if you have any questions, definitely feel free to reach out to us um feel free to reach out to zoos victoria they're very responsive on social media and check them out yeah
0: and if you're ever in doubt with any animal encounters that you're going to be experiencing on your travels anywhere as steph said reach out to the Mm. experts because i feel like they're more than happy to share any advice um with you i feel like you shouldn't feel shameful about it and asking because sometimes you don't know and it's best to, Mm -hmm. to ask what's okay and what's not so great interview steph Thank you. Thanks for taking this one on. All right.
1: Well, everyone,
0: we will see you next week. All the Shit I've Learned Abroad is a travel podcast focused on anything and everything related to travel. You can listen to us on multiple platforms from iTunes to Google Play Music and more. And with that, please, if you have a chance, give us a five-star review on iTunes or whatever platform you listen on. That drives us up the charts and really, really helps us out. Want to support us on Patreon? Find us over at Shit I've Learned Abroad Pod, and donations start as low as just $1. Also, if you could follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Shit Abroad Pod, and Facebook by searching all the shit I've learned abroad. Thanks so much for listening.